Good evening, Encounter. Welcome. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for those of you that are joining us online as well. And uh, before we jump in, I want to share some good news, just a brief story um, from the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm pleased to share with you that last Sunday, uh, we had five people that got baptized, two of them that are part of our encounter cohort, and one more encounter participant that's scheduled for baptism this time next week. So, just super excited just to see um, the forward movement for our encounter participants, and, uh, and certainly worth celebrating. Um, I reached out to one of the individuals that got baptized last Sunday and asked uh, if he could share just a little bit about his experience um, as to the impact that encounters made. And Mike shared this, I'm new to reading the Bible and it's really helping me put things in context better. How to put things said back then in perspective today. It makes it not so intimidating to read. And so just very grateful for the stories that are beginning to come out of this encounter cohort. Just a quick heads up, um, as we kind of round uh, the corner um, and near the end of this experience, uh, we're a couple sessions out from our final time together. And uh, just as, again, a heads up, looking forward for a panel discussion to occur on, on that final evening. And so, um, uh, Andy and Kayla have just done a fantastic job uh, providing instruction these last several weeks, and so there will be some other key leaders that will be uh, joining them again for that final conversation. So more to come um, in the sessions ahead, but we do look forward to that final panel conversation um, at the end of this month. Before we jump in, um, if you could turn to a friend uh, nearby, and once again, I want you to share just one or two key insights that you had from this week's reading. Just a couple remarks, um, some thoughts, um, uh, some new ideas that maybe emerged from your studies from this past week. Uh, good evening, Encounter. Let's go ahead and dive into our panel discussion Q&A. Um, we'll get to business tonight. Uh, so as you all submitted the questions, one of the questions that came up quite a bit was just trying to discern in the book of Acts the difference between prescriptive and descriptive texts. So how do we know something is just describing history or it's actually telling us we need to do things in the church today just like they did in the early church? So let's talk through that prescriptive versus descriptive. Yeah, I think this is probably the single most difficult aspect of interpreting the book of Acts. Because when we read through the Old Testament, we're not tempted to set up an ancient kingdom. You know, we're, we, our, our, our world is just not the same. But we are a New Testament church, just like the people in Acts are a New Testament church. So there's a temptation to read Acts and assume we need to set things up in this same way. However, as we've, we've gone through each week, um, hopefully by now it's, it's become routine and maybe a little old. Um, but the first question is, you know, what, what did this text mean um, to God's people back then? And then what does this mean for God's people today? And what this meant to God's people back then was, what was the author's original intent? Is Luke trying to set up how the early church should function in the book of Acts? Generally speaking, no, he's not. So by and large, most of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. 
I, I would say the only way we could argue that things in Acts are prescriptive is if we find that they're prescriptive elsewhere, um, which was one of the statements we made last week, is that unless it's explicitly stated that it's normative or, or prescriptive, we probably shouldn't take it as, as such. And I know there are a lot of examples. We'll talk about a, a couple of them um, in just a minute. But when we read Acts, what are we reading? We're reading a narrative. And, and the narrative is describing how the church went from being a small Jewish sect to becoming a largely Gentile phenomenon throughout the Roman world. And the question that people like Theophilus, um, who, who Luke wrote Acts to, are asking is, how did this happen? Because people like Theophilus, who were, they experienced the church as it had already grown. It, they, they probably um, came to faith and, and to community in a largely Gentile context. Well, then they hear all these things about, well, this is what happened early on. And it's like, well, we're, we're at A and C. What, what is B? How, how do we get there? That's really what's going on. So I think in general, we should be very cautious about making any sort of prescriptive or normative statements um, from the book of Acts. Yeah, that's helpful. So related to that, one of the things that came up a lot in the questions was related to the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. So one of the questions that comes up is, you know, for example, is Pentecost a prescriptive or descriptive act? But let's maybe uh, zoom out a little bit and think about what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? What, how do we think about Pentecost? Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, and, and actually I, I had a friend who emailed me uh, this week because I misspoke. There, there are not three Pentecost, there are actually four um, Pentecost. I forgot about the one, I think it's in Acts 19, if I remember right. But there are actually four um, Pentecost, and by Pentecost I don't mean the, the festival, I mean the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a group of people who had not previously experienced the Holy Spirit. This happens four times. So, so the question we ask is, what, what is the purpose of, of those events? Well, they happen, the, the uh, Pentecost that we're familiar with in Acts 2 was upon a largely Jewish, um, almost entirely Jewish um, church. Well, then it happens to a Samaritan, group of Samaritans, and it happened after the Jewish church was present at this, it, with these Samaritan believers, then the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues. Well, then it happens at Cornelius' house with Gentiles. And then later when Paul lays his hands on a group in, um, I think it's in Ephesus, if I remember right. Um, again, most of the time that that happens is to demonstrate to the Jewish church that God was moving the church beyond just Jews. And, and the, the response that the um, Jewish leaders have is, wow, God is granting even the Gentiles repentance unto life. They, they have the Holy Spirit too. Why can't we, what can prevent them from being baptized? The, the issue, and this goes back to what I said last week, we do not understand how big of a game changer it was for the Gentiles to be included in the church. In, in fact, I think very early on, I made the point when I was talking about the, the Old Testament at the, the second week of, of class, I made the point that the New Testament was largely written to explain to Jewish believers how the Gentiles 
can be a part of the church, or written to Gentile believers explaining to them how to get along well with their Jewish fellow believers. We, we don't understand that, and because we don't understand that, we're likely to misread Acts, we're likely to misread the epistles, we're likely to misread the Gospels, because the author's purpose is to explain how the Jew and Gentile have become one. It's interesting that the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations in Colossians and Ephesians, he says the mystery is that the Gentiles and Jews are one as God's people. Well, that's no mystery to us. Like we're, that, That's not a big deal to us. It was unbelievable to them. So the role of the Holy Spirit in through going through the book of Acts is to demonstrate the authenticity of the gospel message, to bear witness to the validity of the word, the preaching of the word of God, and to testify that these different people groups had full access to being a part of the church without circumcision, without obedience to, to the Mosaic law. And so then, you know, um, some, some people have, have talked about, well, why can't we, or can we have the apostolic gifts today? Well, I think what we need to do before we answer that question, we need to go back and ask, why were the apostolic gifts so prevalent in the book of Acts? It was because God was doing a very specific thing. Now, does that mean I, I believe that it's not possible to speak in tongues today or to raise the dead or any of those things? That's not what I'm saying. Um, I think that a lot of times, though, when we assume that we should speak in tongues or we assume that we should be able to heal or raise the dead, we're not doing it for the same purpose that the early church was doing it. And I think a lot of times with, with faith healers or um, different, different um, uh, types of these more... Um, uh, ecstatic expressions of, of the Holy Spirit, a lot of times it brings attention to us. It, it, it's a, and that is not what the role of the, the healings or raising the dead or the speaking in tongues, it was to demonstrate the, the authenticity of the preaching of the gospel. So similar note, um, let's go down that van. A lot of questions about speaking in tongues. Um, any wisdom you would give for that? Um, helpful, doctrinal um, things to say? That's a big question, but it came up a lot. I, it, it did. And, and I think I'm not a complete expert on this. One of the things that, that I, I have come to understand is my own um, limited view of Christianity because my context is primarily American um, and then Western Europe. I have not done a lot of traveling in um, Africa. I have not interacted a lot with personally. I know people who are in places like China and the Middle East and, and places. People in those contexts see those things happening a lot more. They see demon possession. They see exorcisms. They see um, speaking in tongues. They, they see these things a lot more um, often than, than we do. I don't necessarily think that so, can solely be attributed to the quote-unquote weakness of the American church, although I think that that might be partially true. But I think what, what we need to go back and ask ourselves is, does the Holy Spirit do things simply for show? And I think the answer to that is no. It, it's not just for show. There, there is a purpose to it. And when there is active demonic activity then how can people who are involved in, in visible manifestations of demonic activity see the, the superiority of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
through more powerful testimony. And so then when you have, in, in Acts you see this, so you have the seven sons of, of Sceva who are like, they're saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to get out. And the demon finally says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And I think it, it, even within the book of Acts, it serves as a warning to us to assume that we can appropriate these, the, these, these powers of the Holy Spirit. They're not superpowers. They're not, you don't become the Hulk or, you know, it's not like Marvel superpowers. It, it doesn't work like that. It brings glory to God and testifies to the reality of Jesus Christ. And I think if we, if we lose sight of that, then we're going to misunderstand the purpose of those gifts. But at the same time, I think because we, we tend to be extreme and, and when we respond or react, we overreact, I totally understand the tendency that, that a lot of believers have to say, those things are not applicable to believers today. I understand why people wanna say that. My problem with that is I don't see a solid, really good biblical argument for that. I think the, argu the biblical arguments for that misconstrue scripture. But so I think it's almost like there are these two camps. There are people who think everyone should be practicing these things all the time. And there's another camp that says no one should be practicing these things ever. Even any Corinthians, Paul makes the point. He said, I would rather hear one good word of prophecy than a thousand in tongues. One of the, the mistakes that we make with regard to the, the sign gifts is we assume that speaking in tongues or healing or raising the dead is a more powerful manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit than a sanctified life. Yeah. A sanctified life is a far more powerful testimony to the reality of who Jesus is. Like I love the story in John 9 where the, the man who's born blind, he's healed. And he just says, one thing I know for sure, I once was blind, but now I see. And he, he, he saw that physically. We, we, we see that in our lives, you know, the metaphorically, like John Newton I, uh, in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The, the power of Jesus to change the life of a slave ship captain, to turn him into a vocal opponent, not only of slavery, but also of, of sin and of a, the, 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 the sanctifying process, that is more powerful. I would rather in my life, I would rather experience the power of Jesus to allow me to say no to sin, to allow me to be a godly husband and father and to love others. I would much rather have that power in my life than to be able to heal. That's helpful. I, th I think even just tagging off what you're saying with um, those gifts meant to exalt Christ and not exalt us. And I think there are ways we could even look out at um, plenty of abuses of the sign gifts. And you can really see that at the center of many of those, it's someone that's trying to draw attention to themselves. And it, kind of going back to your distinction about magic versus miracles early mm -hmm. on, that it can, when it's abused, you can have times where people are treating God as something that they can make him do things. I'm going to declare that I'm going to do this. I'm going to make God do something on my behalf. Mm -hmm. And that would absolutely be an abuse. So to your point, it's always going to exalt Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the Bible for many of those lays down prescriptions of the things we should do. So think about speaking in tongues. There needs to be a translator. So if there's no interpreter, there's no translator, then, then we know that it can't be valid. Um, and there's just little things like that that we can keep in mind. And it's important to just because something feels really powerful doesn't always mean it's according to scripture. Satan can make us feel a lot of things too.
And so it's just worthwhile as, okay, what does the Bible have to say about it? A couple books that are really helpful in this conversation if you want to dive deeper. One is called Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson. It's a little tiny book, and it's a commentary on 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. And the other one is Spirit and Sacrament by Andrew Wilson. So Spirit and Sacrament's a little more lay level. Showing the Spirit's a little more of an academic commentary. But both are going to find helpful ways to talk about the sign gifts in a way that is always going to exalt God. Mm-hmm. And it'll just give you more information on what that looks like. So mm-hmm. a lot more you can say there. But uh, if you have questions, come up and talk afterwards. But we should stop with that. Um, final question. What do we make of the radical generosity in the book of Acts in the early church? And do we practice that today or do we not? This is always a hard question. But... So if you ask this question, I'm not make, putting an indictment on you personally, but I'm just going to go ahead and say this. And if it offends someone, that's okay, um, because it offends me too. The fact that we have such a problem with this question probably indicates a little bit of where our hearts are. Um, I know for me it does, because it's like, I, I, why does it bother me to see other people be generous? Because it uncovers my lack of, of generosity. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason that you know, any of us ask that question, but, but I think we, we do need to check our hearts. Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. I think there's a reason, well, he could have said anything. He could have said a whole lot of things. He said, God and money. Um, <clears throat> it is such a barometer of, of our hearts. The other issue that comes into this is that especially as, as Western Americans, we have, we, we've had this, this concept because our, our own history, we see the radical generosity of the early church and the nearest comparison we have to it is communism. It's, it's not communism. Communism is a forced ideology from the top down where the top forces there to be no private possession of property. Scripture in no way condemns possession of property. In fact, with the Ananias and Sapphira story, Peter says, "Wasn't the, this was your property. And when you sold it, it was at your disposal. There, there is no forced equality. And, and really the, the belief that if you have e- financial and economic equality, that things are gonna be good is, is really also a lie because it's serving money. It's believing, oh, if, I, if, I, if everyone has the same amount of money, it's gonna fix everything. Money is not our problem. Our hearts are our problem. But that being said, the, 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 the other aspect of this question is, why do, why do we not see it so much today? And part of the reason I think we, we don't see it is because it does happen. But people who do it don't always wanna make a show about it, which is good. It's like, I mean, I, I know there are times I, I worked at a, a job for, for three years where I was doing a, a ministry job where I was told I was going to get paid and told I was going to get paid and uh, never got paid. And so, I mean, I was like destitute with my family. We were, for three years, I had no money. We didn't live. We, I mean, how do you live? We live because other people were generous to us. And now did, did they announce it? Was it obvious that they were doing it? No, but it was different people at different times were, were practicing generosity. So it does happen. So I don't think we need to, we should, we should say it doesn't, it doesn't happen. 
But I think the other thing is that sometimes we're not always willing to admit that we have financial need. And I think if, if we were more open about our struggles, I think other people might be more open in, in their generosity. And so there, it's kind of a both, it's a two-way street. Um, but we always also have to check our hearts and say, are we, are we willing to have the same kind of extravagant generosity that the early church practiced? Now, do we have to have it all the time? And I think the answer is no. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. Did in every church that Paul established, did he say, you have to sell things and share wealth? He did not say that. That is, it is not a common occurrence. It shows up in, in, the, in Acts chapter, you know, the early part of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts, it's absent. It's not, it's by no means normative. Is the sacrificial love for others more than love for yourself? Is that normative in scripture? Absolutely. But sometimes, and I think we also need to realize that there are times where if I sell everything and give to someone else, how do I know that's actually going to benefit them? Because that, that's another thing too, is that sometimes we believe it's not about the money. What it's about is I believe enough in other people that I care about other people enough that I am willing to have less so that they can have what they need. It's not about we're all going to drive the same kind of car or we're all going to live in the same kind of house or we're all that that's not what what is being said. But what's being said is, do I love God and love my neighbor as myself? And and so I think, you know, in terms of like, do do we should we practice this today? Yes and no. Should we practice common possession and ownership of goods? No, I don't believe that. Should we practice, should we practice extravagant generosity? for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God? Absolutely. Well, we uh, shift to the guiding questions. Let me make one comment while you're turning there. Um, I th one of the advantages of working inside a church is seeing tons of examples of people who were generous, but you would have no idea. It's not advertised like you were saying, and it is so cool to watch needs being met by people who are just silently generous. But I think one more public way we do this, that some people don't even know this ministry exists, but it is our cars ministry within Pleasant Valley. I can't tell you how many lives have been changed. And one of my favorite emails to get is when Debbie Moore will send out the email saying, hey, staff, if you're around the building, 10 a.m. today, we're going to have a car giveaway where a car is donated to the church by usually a, someone from PV. It's fi fixed up by volunteer mechanics, and then we give it away to someone that is in desperate need. And the lives that get changed by that are powerful. There's a radical generosity that happens. And um, I, I wish more people were aware. It is a powerful ministry. So just a quick plug. If, uh, for example, if you have a car uh, after the year 2000, um, and you, you're looking for somewhere to uh, donate it, this would be the, a great ministry to do it. Or if you have uh, mechanical skills, it's a great ministry to serve in, and you can practice generosity in that, mm -hmm. and seeing the life impact is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. So radical generosity does happen. Of course, we could always do more, but there's some cool examples within the life of the church that we don't always hear about um, that I think are worth hearing just to be mm -hmm. encouraged. So. Let's go to the guiding questions. Yeah. And really, we've, we've answered a lot of these um, already, so I just kind of touch on a few of them. Uh, what does the beginning of Acts tell us about the purpose of the narrative? The purpose is the advancement of the, whole, of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus, 
through the acts of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I was listening to, to Acts today and I got to the end and it says, Paul is in Rome and it says he's preaching freely and without hindrance. And if you, you rewind through Acts and you go back and you think, look at all the potential hindrances that there were, you know, I, of uh, Herod who puts James to death and then imprisons Peter. And it seems like things are in a really bad place. And then Peter escaped, you know, he's delivered um, from, from prison and Herod is eaten by worms. And then the, the, the which is just an incredible thing on its own. But then it says, so there's this story. And this, the, the next line Luke says is, but the word of God continued to spread. Herod could not stop the spread of the kingdom of God. Even back further, um, the, the Sanhedrin could not stop the spread of the kingdom of God. Uh, you go forward, uh, stonings, imprisonment, uh, political bureaucracy, corruption, demon-possessed girls, uh, you know, uh, uh, financial enterprise in Ephesus with the, the idol makers. I mean, all of these things, and it's, it's funny because we see those same things because you feel like, man, you know, what, what hope is there when, all, when, when, the, the, when godless people have all the power and all the money and all of this, what can possibly be done? Read the book of Acts. What can possibly be done? Everything. God does not need money to advance his kingdom. And I think maybe that's kind of the counterpoint to, or the, 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 the offset to the idea of generosity. Yes, we're generous, but we shouldn't assume that God needs our money. God does not need our money to advance his kingdom. God does not need anything. You see the, the work of the Holy Spirit all through and from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Um, the Holy Spirit is all through it. It's amazing how many times the phrase full of the Holy Spirit is that, and most of the time, it's not full of the Holy Spirit, they do something amazing. Most of the time, it's full of the Holy Spirit, then they testify to who Jesus is. There's, there's this attachment to the fullness of the Holy Spirit with the testimony, um, the speeches, Stephen's speech, uh, Peter's speech, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they get up and they testify. The role of those speeches is really to demonstrate the Gentile inclusion, the Jewish rejection, and how that was always what, what had happened, that all Israel was not truly Israel. All throughout, there, it was always a minority of people who saw what God was doing and joined in that. Whether they were Jew, Gentile, Rome, what, whatever, it was never the people you expected it to be. And when you, you go through the book of Acts and you see the type of people who are getting saved and joining the church, all sorts of people, all kinds of people. The one thing they have in common is the Holy Spirit did a work in their hearts and they turned um, and they forsook their sin. One of the other stories I just love in Acts is the one about all the people when they, they all, um, they burn their magic books. And in the, uh, the New Living Translation, it says that it was worth several million dollars. I mean, can you imagine having your heart so transformed by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit and you believe in Jesus so much that you are willing to burn millions of dollars worth of stuff. That's incredible. And you see that the, the power of the Holy Spirit all the way through to the end where Paul is proclaiming the word of God in the heart of the Roman Empire unhindered. 
And, you know, then, so similarities, differences, we've talked about some of those things. What hope can we have from reading Acts and the story of the early church? It's the same Holy Spirit. The same power is within us. Now, does that mean that we're going to, you know, survive shipwrecks and get bit by snakes and shake it off and all that? Not necessarily, but does it mean that we can have the same boldness to proclaim the word of God freely and without hindrance, no matter what the obstacles are? Yes, absolutely. Um, It doesn't matter what happens in our country. It doesn't matter what happens in an election cycle, or it doesn't matter what happens in, in our church or these things. We can still hold fast to the certainty that God's kingdom will prevail his spirit will triumph. And he said, it's the same message of the Old Testament to Zechariah, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's the message of the book of Acts. And we're still living that today. So good. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll transition to a time of teaching. God, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that it, it fills those of us who are believers and God, um, we thank you for the account of the book of Acts and just the incredible works you did um, in the midst of the early church. Um, God, I pray that we would have the boldness of faith that many of them had. Um, God, I pray that we would lean on your spirit, not our own might. God, I pray that we would seek your glory and not our own as we go through our ministry in life to share the gospel. And God, help us live with a reckless abandon to see that nothing is greater than you and your namesake. Um, God, help us live with a reckless abandon like the early church. And uh, God, help us join together as a church at PV and all over, all those that are tuning in, uh, to be the church, to be Jesus, to the community around us. God, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we are getting closer and closer to to wrapping things up. Um, It's been a great time. Uh, Just walking through uh, scripture with you guys over the past uh, nine, ten weeks. And as I said earlier, really the basic idea that we're, we're getting to is we want to be able to interpret Scripture well. We don't want it to just be, well, what this means to me is this, and someone else says, well, what this means to me is this. Um, through um, our discussion on the book of Acts, we kind of illustrated this, that there are a lot of different people who have a lot of different beliefs on the book of Acts and what it means for modern believers. And, and for those of us, as we think about it, we kind of think, well, what did it mean to them? Because that's really what matters. It doesn't matter what I think Acts means. It doesn't really matter what you think Acts means. What matters is what did God inspire the original author to say to the original audience? So, or another way to say it, like we've said, is what did this mean to God's people back then? So the message of Acts, just kind of to to illustrate these two questions through the book of Acts, to God's people back then, they were a largely persecuted church, right? If you read through, there was, there was constant persecution uh, to varying degrees. And though they had, they had periods where the persecution lessened, it was always on the horizon. They were always opposed. And what was the message to them? That the truthfulness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the message, uh, the proclamation of his messiahship 
overcomes all obstacles and triumphs over the might of the, the Jewish political scene, the Roman political scene, nature, um, demonic powers, all, all sorts of things. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God and the advancement of his kingdom as seen in the early church. That was the message to God's people back then. Acts was an encourage, a message of encouragement. Even though it didn't always say, this is how the church should be, specifically, as in we should all share wealth or we should all speak in tongues or we should all do this or that. What it does mean is that the power of the Holy Spirit is present in the proclamation of the word of God and his kingdom continues to advance against all opposition. So what does that mean for God's people today? Well, as we really illustrated, it's the same message. We can be bold, not because of our brilliance, not because of our education or because of the, 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 our programs or, or any of those things, but simply because we've been with Jesus. One of my absolute favorite verses in the book of Acts is when they, they take Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and it says they saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and they took note that they'd been with Jesus. And that's what we need today, are people who have been with Jesus. Because that's what turned the world upside down. Um, I love the, the Ian Bounds quote, you know, Ian Bounds, the, the, the uh, great... Uh, pastor and a writer on, on prayer um, of years past, he made the statement, he said, men are looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And then he goes on to say, men who are yielded to the Holy Spirit. And really we see this. So the, the, the two basic questions, as we read through the book of Acts, it's not a prescription on how we should do church. It's a, it is a description of what the Holy Spirit can do in the lives of people who are yielded to him. So then our goal of interpretation is to determine the author's original intent to his original audience. And this keeps us from kind of going off one way and saying, well, this is what it means to me. And then this means something else. You go back to what did the original author intend? And then uh, the goal of application is how do we apply or live out the meaning of the text today in line with what it meant to God's people back then? Hopefully, as you've seen in each week, we kind of have illustrated this, but essentially these two questions govern how we understand, interpret, and apply scripture. So then... When we come to the, the next set of books we're talking about are the epistles. Epistle is just a fancy word that means letter. The epistles are probably the most deceptive of books when it comes to interpreting them, because we assume that they're really easy to understand and interpret. I think we tend to make more mistakes interpreting the New Testament epistles than any other section of scripture, especially in the New Testament. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first of which is that we often forget the Acts reading principles. The significance of the Gentile acceptance into the Jewish church, this was huge. This 
explained why most of these epistles or letters were written. Also, the idea of things that are narrated versus things that are normative. If you can go so far as to accept, okay, in Acts, there are things that Luke describes that are just narrated, but that's not normative. That doesn't mean that every church has to do it all the time. There are also things like that in the epistles, but it's even harder for us to to see that because if you go back to something I said in week one, we assume the Bible was written to us and the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. So the book of Ephesians was written to whom? To the church at Ephesus. The book of Corinthians was written to whom? The church at Corinth. Rome, I mean, so we can just go on down down this list. The problem is none of us are in the early first century church in Ephesus or in Corinth or in Rome. Because of that, is it possible that we may not understand what Paul is saying as well as we think we do? Yes, that is very possible. How do we overcome that? What we need to do is we need to understand what was Paul saying to that church because what was the situation in that church? So when we go to a few other uh, tips for reading epistles, the epistles are cohesive letters, not loose collections of sayings. By now you probably, well, you've probably heard me say this enough to, to, to laugh about it. We need to stop reading scripture, a verse here, a verse there. This, this idea of a, a verse a day keeps the devil away. They weren't, it wasn't intended that we read it like that. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does Romans 3.22 say? 3.21, 3.20. 3.19, 3.18, I can go on and on. Paul was not making a statement in a vacuum. See, we know Romans 3.23. We know Romans 6.23. We know Romans 5.8, but there's other stuff in between. And the, you know, the illustration, I've used it before, bears, bears repeating. If you got an email or you say you're, you're a, an attorney and you're reading a legal document, are you going to read the fourth line first and then the twelfth line and then the third line and then the sixth line and then just, you know, I'm just going to read a line a day and see what speaks to me. Now that, that's ridiculous. But isn't that how we read the Bible? The Bible was not intended for us to just read a verse here, a verse there. It was intended to be, especially with the, the epistles, they're cohesive letters. When you read a letter, where do you start? The beginning. Where do you end? At the end. And how do you read a letter? All the way through. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just think to yourself. How many of us have read 1 Corinthians all the way through in one sitting or Romans? Maybe we have like Ephesians, Galatians, they're a little shorter, they're easier to read, but maybe not even those. If we haven't read it all the way through, 
we're not reading it the way it was intended to be read. If we're not reading it the way it was intended to be read, we run the risk of not understanding the author's original intent. Now, does that involve work? Yes, it does. How many good things in life come with no work? None. Is it worth the work to be skilled at understanding and applying scripture? I would suggest that it matters more what is in scripture than it does what is the headlines of yesterday, today, or tomorrow's news. How many of us over the past few weeks have spent a lot of time reading news articles? (laughs) I wonder if we devoted the same attention to reading scripture that we, as we do reading news articles or baseball box scores or watching football games or whatever the case may be, we have the time to do this. We just choose not to. They're cohesive letters. They're also not theological treatises or summaries. They weren't written to explain and summarize all of Christian thinking not even Romans. The funny thing about the book of Romans, do you know what Romans is? A support letter. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church at Rome because he was going to visit them and he wanted them to help support him to take the gospel to Spain. I'm like, man, if I could write a support letter like that, I would never have any trouble fundraising anything but it's a, it's a support letter. Even Romans, even though it is a very clear outline and probably the most robust understanding of Christian theology, its purpose was not to be systematic theology. Its purpose was to get to know Paul and his, um, his, the, the presentation of, his presentation of the gospel so that the Roman church could support him on his missionary journeys. We need to understand that when we read Romans, because otherwise we're likely to misunderstand and assume, well, he's just doing this for theology's sake. Then we're like, well, then we can just read parts of it. You have to read the whole thing. It is a cohesive letter. It is not a theological treatise or summary. Related to this is the idea that epistles are occasional. This does not mean that you read them occasionally. What this means is that they had a specific purpose. There was an occasion for their writing. They were written to a specific audience for a specific purpose. This is where reading the epistles becomes difficult because we don't always have that information before us. Sometimes we have to read between the lines. So 1 Corinthians, about halfway through, Paul makes a statement. Now for the matters you wrote about. We don't have the Corinthians letter to Paul that brought about Paul's writing back to the Corinthian church. There was probably another letter written between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we do not have. So we have to be careful readers to understand what was the situation in the Corinthian church, for example, that necessitated Paul's writings. 
Well, if you read Corinthians, even a cursory reading, what you'll realize is there was a lot of chaos and impropriety in how they did worship. They did not know what they were doing. And there were all kinds of divisions and arguments and factions. And Paul was writing 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church to address specific problems that they had. Now, that doesn't mean that, it does, that, that it's not meaningful to us at all, because we still face the same problems. And ultimately, we believe that God ordained that the letter of Corinthians was inscripturated, which means that it is important to all peoples at all times and in all places. But how that specifically applies to all peoples, all times, all places, that is more difficult to determine. But we need to understand that these are occasional letters. Because of this, applying the epistles is more difficult than is often assumed. Because we assume that it was written to us, we assume that its purpose is to just make theological statements, and we assume that it's just, I can take this statement, I can take that statement, that's not the way these are intended to be read. So there are a number of problems that we run into when we uh, read the epistles that we need to be aware of. The first is the problem of extended application. I'm going to give you an example of this, um, also from the book of 1 Corinthians. If any of you are uh, like me and were raised in the church, you at some point in your life have heard someone quote these verses to you. And this is what these verses say, if I can find them. There we go. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Now, what context are these verses usually quoted to someone? What? I knew my 20-somethings would, would, would jump on this. So someone, yeah, tell me. Okay, can I get a tattoo? <laughs> no! Don't you know your body is the temple of God? And you would desecrate that temple, right? Or like for me, I was uh, being a preacher's kid. I spent more time in the church building than out of it. Don't run in this building. It's God's temple. Is that what this verse is saying? No, it's actually not. Because if we read this carefully, what we need to know is that Paul is saying that you, plural, in English, it doesn't always come across this way because we, it's, not, it's not written in Southern English where it would say, y'all, or if you're from the, uh, the Pennsylvania area, Ewans, right? <laughs> you all are God's temple, corporately. And what we need to do is we need to back up and we need to understand what was the Corinthian understanding of a temple? A temple... It was a physical manifestation of an invisible deity. So they had a temple to Zeus and there was a statue of Zeus in the temple and you would go into the temple and that temple represented Zeus. 
Or if you went to Ephesus and you went to the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians, you would go and there would be a physical representation of Artemis. What is the physical representation of God in Corinth? The local body of believers. What Paul is saying here is not you can't get a tattoo or you can't, you need to be in shape. You can't eat junk food or you can't do this or that. Not making any comments about whether you actually should or shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is what is Paul saying here to the Corinthian church? He is saying you all corporately local church at Corinth are the physical manifestation of God in your city. So what you do, local church, is an advertisement for who your God is. So when you have lawsuits and you take them before an unbelieving judge, that is a poor representation of who your God is. When you have impropriety in worship and you care more about yourself than about your fellow believers, that is a poor testimony and it is a poor representation of who your God is. See, this verse is actually a whole lot more convicting to us than simply, does this mean I shouldn't get a tattoo? This is saying that we, as a church, represent God. That is a much bigger deal than just we show up on Sunday, we sing our songs, and we go home. And it's not about a building because the Corinthian church didn't have a building. This building is not God's temple. We sitting in the chairs here, we who are online watching, we are God's temple singular. We plural are God's singular temple. See, the problem of extended application where we take a case specific first century matter and we try to apply it to a similar but not identical modern matter is we're in danger of missing the point and misapplying it. Again, I'm not saying you can go get tattoos or you shouldn't go get tattoos. I'm saying everything you do represents Jesus. Think about that. That is a big deal. Second Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though he's making his appeal through us. Everything we do, everything we say represents Jesus. To me, that's a whole lot bigger deal than when I was a kid and saying, you shouldn't eat junk food because your body's a temple. It's a whole lot bigger deal than that. Everything we do represents Jesus. If we, see, if we extend the application, I think we, it loses the power. This verse is not just talking about what you eat or drink or what you do to your body, although those things do matter, but it's talking about what do we do corporately as a church? If I'm gossiping about someone in the church, if I am disgruntled with leadership and 
talking about them behind their back. If I am sowing discord, what am I doing? I am destroying the temple of God because I am making God look bad in the eyes of other believers and of unbelievers. If we do not apply, interpret and apply scripture correctly, we are likely to misapply it. And in our rush to, to, you, to pull a verse out because I don't want my daughter to get a tattoo, I'm going to pull this verse out and say, this is what this verse says. Well, let's zoom back and let's say, no, the bigger deal is we represent Jesus in all we do. And I don't know about you, but to me, it's a whole lot weightier matter to represent Jesus than it is to eat a Big Mac, whether I should eat a Big Mac or not. So that's the problem of extended application. The next problem we have is the problem of cultural discontinuity, where we, how do we apply passages or principles that don't seem to have any modern comparison? An example of this is the eating of uh, meat sacrificed to idols. This is not something we deal with in our culture today. I don't know of any restaurant where they sacrifice the meat to an idol before they come and serve it to me. If there is one, I don't know about it. There there might be somewhere. Now, if, if you are an East Asian Christian, this might be a bigger deal to you. This might be a real problem that you face. For us, we don't have this, this situation. And so when Paul talks about things like... Um, We who are strong ought to bear with those who are weak or uh, don't do anything that, that offends, that causes offense. We again are in danger of misapplying this because we don't understand the principle that is at stake. We don't understand the principle really what's going on. The the principle that in, in the, in the meat sacrifice to idols is that there are some things that my conscience may allow me to do. But if I care more about what my conscience allows me to do than about a weaker brother and what's best for him or for her, I have a sin problem in my heart. And my freedom to do something which is perfectly fine for me should not be an excuse to damage or destroy another believer. Now, this is another another verse that, that oftentimes is misused because you hear people say something like, it offends me that you do this, so you shouldn't do it because the Bible says you shouldn't do anything that offends someone. Any of you ever heard that before? All right, some of us have, have probably heard that. Um, some of us have probably heard it in the context that the, the whether Christians should, should drink alcohol or not kind of comes up a lot in, in, in this uh this type of a situation. The problem is this is not talking about a mature believer who is offended at the acts of a less mature believer. It's actually the other way around. And what it's saying is that we who are mature and are okay with doing something, if it could cause, if doing that would cause another brother or sister to be destroyed Really what that means is if it damages their faith, then I need to be willing not to do it. See, it's the principle that matters because otherwise if we get, if we try to apply it too specifically without understanding what, what is Paul saying? 
or we try to apply it to a, another cultural situation that really isn't the same. Eating meat sacrificed to idols is not the same cultural situation as drinking alcohol for Christians. It's not the same. Now, again, I'm not saying whether someone should or shouldn't do that. All I'm saying is if we are going to be careful readers of scripture and apply things the way the original author intended, we need to beware of situations where there is a cultural discontinuity. And we need to recognize that. This is not a practice we have in our church today, meat sacrifice to idols. So I shouldn't just take these verses and wholesale apply them to something we do have today. We have to be careful of how we apply passages that don't seem to have any modern comparison. If you're not squirming enough yet, just wait. Number three, the problem of cultural relativity. Relativity this idea of cultural relativity is applying a passage universally that may have been intended to be applied only to a specific context or that varied from context to context. In our modern Christian evangelical uh, Western American, how many adjectives can I string together there? Culture, we, we are very cautious about the word relative and relativity. And rightfully so, because our culture has used this idea of relative and relativity to basically say anything goes. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that, that the fact that there is a degree of cultural relativity implies that there are no norms or absolutes. That is not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying and what we need to recognize is that there is a degree of cultural variation even within the early church. If we, as we read the book of Acts carefully, one of the things that we notice is the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers seemed to have different standards. Did you guys notice that? Paul, in, um, when Paul was accused in, um, uh, at the end of the book of Acts, when he was arrested by the, the Jews and they almost tore him apart, he was accused of telling Jews to abandon their Jewish practices. Now, if you read the book of Acts carefully, did Paul ever encourage Jews to abandon their Jewish practices? No. What did Paul say? Gentiles did not have to adopt Jewish practices to be saved. That is cultural relativity right there in the New Testament. Because Paul is saying that Jews, Jews could practice one thing. They could abstain from eating meat with blood in it. Gentiles did not have to do the same thing. And it was okay for both of them. We are very uncomfortable with this, this idea that it's okay for some people to do something and it's not okay for others. When I lived um, overseas in, in England, um, it, it was amazing to me being, being a, a good Southern Baptist, son of a Southern Baptist preacher. Um, I couldn't imagine good Christians drinking ever. 
and I go to, to England and we take communion and it's wine. It's like, what is this? And it kind of shakes you up and you're like, what, what in the world is going on? And what I began to realize was my view of Christianity is very determined by where I lived and what I did. Even, even, I mean, even in America, there's a big difference between what our church does and what an inner city Kansas City church does. We're in the same city. There is a certain degree of cultural relativity because some passages are intended to be applied to a specific context. The problem is the writer doesn't always say whether it is intended to be applied locally or universally. And this creates difficulties for us. But I think we have, what we have to understand is that imagine for a second, this weren't so. Imagine there was no cultural relativity whatsoever. What would our church have to look like? As what? The same, yes, but the same as what? We would have to look like the church in Acts. If there was no, if, if the gospel could not adapt to various cultures, it would demand that we all adopted a first century Jewish, because what was the early church at the very beginning of Acts? A first century Jewish culture. None of us are willing to, to do that, I don't, I don't believe. And I don't think we should. But I think we need to use that to help us understand that the strength of the gospel message is that it can apply to various cultures. So if you've ever gone to Africa and worshiped in a church in Africa, guess what? You are not going to be comfortable. It's totally different. But you know what? They are worshiping the same Lord and Savior that we are. If we go to Russia or China or to the underground church in Iran, what are we going to experience? Cultural relativity. But then we have to ask this question. If, there, if cultural relativity is true, if there is a degree of cultural relativity, then isn't everything relative? And the answer is no, it is not. Because one, one example of this um, that, that is very prevalent in, in our culture and has become a very, very touchy subject is, well, might, might not um, uh, homosexuality be a culturally relative thing? It wasn't okay in the early church, but, but now it's okay. Well, when we look at scripture, what we see is that at no point in time ever, is there any verses in scripture that condone homosexual practices? Not a single one. It's listed in, in Paul's, the, there are sin lists that are listed. Now, before we get too, you know, too high on it, we also need to realize that um, gossip and slander and disobedience to parents are listed in the abominable sin lists. So before we start thinking too much about how 
awful one practice is. We need to be aware of all the practices that are abominations to God. But there are some practices that are roundly condemned in scripture. There are others just to make us even more uncomfortable, like the role of women in ministry, women pastors or elders, that it seems like there are some verses that say in one direction and some that speak in another. I don't like that. I would much rather scripture lay everything out and have it be uniform all the time. But you know what? That says more about me than it does about scripture. And you know what it says about me? I'm legalistic. I like legalism. I want it to be the same for everyone. I cannot handle the fact that it is possible for one person to do something and it be okay and for someone else to do it and it be sin. I don't like that. I want, if it's sin for me, it's sin for everyone, period. But the, I, this, that's not the way the gospel is presented. Was it a sin for early Jews to eat meat with blood in it? Yes, their conscience condemned them and it was sin. Was it a sin for a Gentile to do the exact same thing? No, it wasn't. Does that blow our minds? Yes, it does. Because I don't, I don't like this idea, but you know what that means? Because this is what this means. We have to listen to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts me. This is not right for you. It might be okay for someone else. It's not okay for you. You can't watch those kinds of movies, even though your friends do. Well, that just means I'm a better Christian than my friends and they, they haven't been convicted yet. No, it means I have not. This is what the Holy Spirit has convicted me of. I am fully convinced in my own mind that for me, this is a sinful practice. What about him? What is the Holy Spirit saying to him? Now, again, like I said, what does that mean? The Holy, I hear people say things sometimes like, well, the Holy Spirit told me to cheat on my wife. No, it didn't. Because when we read scripture, we recognize that adultery is sin always. But there are other things that are more culturally conditioned or cultural, they're culturally relative. Now, this leads us to our fourth problem, which maybe is the biggest one of all, and that is the problem of unanswered questions. Because what question do we have now? What's culturally relative and what's not? Paul, if, if, it, is, if, if it is always all times at all places wrong for this specific practice, just say that. And Paul doesn't say that. Is God capable of saying exactly what he wants to say, exactly how he wants to say it? Yes. Is scripture exactly what God wanted it to be for us? Yes. So when there are unanswered questions, the problem is that we are trying to answer our own questions or concerns. And really what we need to be focused on primarily is what are the questions or concerns of the original audience and how is the author addressing those concerns? Personally, what I believe is if we focus on the questions that scripture has, 
we probably will find that our own questions are not as critical as we thought they were. It's kind of like I, was, I said earlier, you know, well, what about, what about speaking in tongues and sign gifts and, and everything? I don't know. Scripture is not clear. But it is clear that my personal sanctification is God's will for my life. If I spend all my time trying to answer these unanswered questions and don't worry so much about the personal holiness in my life, that's a problem. If I spend all my time arguing about why I have the right to get a tattoo or to drink alcohol, and I don't spend much time thinking everything that I do represents Jesus, am I representing Jesus well? I'm probably missing the point. Years ago, my, my dad said to me, he said, Andy, if scripture is not, if you are not finding the answer to your question in scripture, you're probably asking the wrong question. We need to learn to ask the right questions. And sometimes we let our, our own concerns or more appropriately our, is this person sinning or not? That becomes our primary question. Where really what we need to focus on is if we as a church are the temple of God, if we are the visible manifestation of Jesus Christ in Liberty, Missouri, how do we do that? So when we have our business meeting coming up in, in a couple of weeks and we start thinking about things, what should our primary focus should be? How do we represent Jesus well? See, that's asking the right questions. It's not, well, is this okay or is that okay? And even though we do have to get into some of the details and there will be disagreement. One of the things we have to do is we have to be okay with other people disagreeing. But we need to understand that we're not always going to be able to answer all the questions. I had an Old Testament professor once who would jokingly say, why do we have like 13 chapters in chronicles of names and genealogies and only one and a half chapters on the creation of the universe? Like a little less chronicles, a little more. How, how did you make the universe, Lord? See, but we asked the wrong questions. We need to ask the questions the author wants us to ask because then we'll understand what the author is trying to say. So final two tips for reading. The, actually, I guess I have three. Final three tips. Pay close attention to the original intent and purpose. It's not always about me personally. Most of these letters were written corporately to a local church about how you as a local church, we as a local church, Corinth as a local church, Ephesus as a local church, Thessalonica as a local church, how you are to behave, what you are to understand about who Jesus is and based on who Jesus is, how you are to act. Recognize the difference between moral and cultural issues. We've kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, one of the ones I like to see is say, okay, so um, head coverings, women wearing head coverings, moral or cultural issue? Cultural. 
Homosexuality, moral or cultural issue? Moral. Women in ministry, moral or cultural issue? Ooh, that becomes harder, doesn't it? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but we recognize that there is a difference. And we need to stop pretending that there's no difference. There is a difference. Even in the early church, there was a difference, but we need to recognize it. But finally, and most importantly, we need to recognize that believers often have good grounds for genuine disagreement. I found that growing up, because you know you, you grow up typically in one church, um, many times you have one, one pastor and, and one kind of point of view, and, and you just that's, that's the point of view, and that's right. You're, you're maybe one theological viewpoint. And so anyone who believes in uh, has a different end times view or a different view about uh, uh, women in ministry or a different view about the clothes you should wear to church or just whatever the case may be, they're just all wrong. And then you start paying closer attention to the arguments that, that people are making and you read through the passages of scripture. And have you ever noticed how we, we focus on the passages of scripture that agree with our point of view and we quickly gloss over the ones that disagree or that seem to, to say something other than our point of view? Right, so like um, my, you know, Cal Calvinists hate the verses like in, in, in Jonah, where it's like God changed his mind and didn't destroy Nineveh. And so we're gonna jump through hoops and hurdles explaining how God really didn't change his mind, right? But then uh, Arminians are very much, they, they're like, I don't like these verses where it says God chose you and predestined you. The problem is both are in scripture. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to be a whole lot more humble than we are. We need to recognize that there are good believers who love Jesus and love his word and want to treat his word with respect and fairly and rightly divide it, who will have good grounds for genuine disagreement, and that is okay. Not on moral issues. We're not talking deity of Christ here. We're not talking about the virgin birth. We're not talking about these, what, what some, what scholars call these first order issues. It's not debate. It's not okay for you to not believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That's called heresy. But every disagreement between you and another believer is not heresy. My plea is that we would learn how to be fully convinced on our own minds and still have charity toward those who hold a different view. Uh, as, as many of you know, a lot of our, the, the information in, in this class um, uh, is from uh, two gentlemen, Gordon Fee, a New Testament professor who was at Gordon-Conwell for a long time, and, and Doug Stewart, an Old Testament professor, who wrote the, the book, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Uh, their previous book that they wrote before that was How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which kind of does what I'm doing in this class and just walking through the different genres of scripture. When they concluded their section on the epistles, um, they concluded with this paragraph, which I think is, is just a great way for us to conclude our time as well. So they say, these then are some of our hermeneutical suggestions for reading and interpreting the epistles. Our immediate aim is for greater precision and consistency. 
Our larger aim is to call us all to greater obedience to what we do hear and understand and to an openness and charity toward others when they differ with us. Perhaps if we were truly to do so, the world might pay more attention to our Savior. Greater obedience to what we do hear and understand and openness and charity toward others when they differ with us. We can be careful and clear and confident in reading and applying scripture and still have charity toward others who disagree. So that's our goal when we read the epistles. So for next session, our goal for the, for the next session, I want to read um, how to read the Bible book by book, pages 315 to 316, which is just a general introduction to the epistles. Then we're going to read the book of First Thessalonians, a small book, one of the first written, um, one of the earliest of the epistles written, along with uh, pages 364 to 368 in how to read the Bible book by book, which is just kind of that walkthrough on First Thessalonians. Uh, then we'll answer the guiding questions on page 58 of the encounter manual. If you're interested in, in more than that, um, read the book of Romans. That's kind of quite a jump from First Thessalonians, um, along with uh, how to read the Bible book by book, pages 317 to 323. My encouragement to you, whatever you read, First Thessalonians, the reason I, I, I chose this book is because it's really doable to read it beginning to end, read it like a letter. Don't read it just looking for a couple of key verses. We all know those verses are in there especially if you've been in church for very, very long, right? We all know, uh, don't quench the spirit, you know, rejoice, always pray that. We all know those are in 1 Thessalonians. But it's a letter. Read the whole thing all the way through. I would encourage you to do it multiple times uh, during the week. If you do have time to read Romans, read it all at once. Romans is also a letter. Hebrews is a letter. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they are letters. Read them that way. So for next week, we will do some guiding questions, Q&A discussion on the book of First Thessalonians. And then we'll have our last uh, teaching time, which will be uh, a, a very um, humble introduction to the <laughs> book of Revelation, which I know is what a lot of you are very excited about and which I am not sure if I'm looking forward to or not. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. We thank you so much that you love us. You've called us to represent you both individually and corporately. We represent you. Lord, I pray that as we uh, go about our week, as we read uh, through uh, the epistles, as we read uh, 1 Thessalonians, that we would have a better understanding of who you are, how you want us to live our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us greater precision and clarity in interpreting and understanding scripture, but also give us more love and charity toward those who disagree with us. Most of all, Lord, I pray, as, uh, as Fee and Stuart mentioned, I just pray that people will be attracted to you 
by the way we interpret scripture, by the way we preach and teach scripture, and by the way we live out scripture in our lives. I thank you for each one here and pray that you would bless them this week. In your name we pray, amen.